Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have an amazing founder. We're going to be really talking about all the good stuff that we like to hear now. In this case, you know, perseverance, you know, and 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 how, you know, like he's gone about the business. He he actually tried it in four instances. So now on the fourth try, he's really built this rocket ship that we're going to be talking about. And we're going to be talking about the way that they went about fundraising, which is not the typical, you know, uh, way of doing things because they went and did their Series A when they were already at 15 million in uh, revenue. Uh, it was a massive Series A with 70 million that they raised and they even had investors signing social contracts. So uh, definitely not something that you hear, you know, often, but they were going to be discussing all of this stuff in detail. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Vlad. Magdalene, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. It's great to be here, Alejandro. So originally born in the USSR. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, life growing up was very different from uh, life right now. I grew up in a very small village uh, outside of a town in the USSR on the border of Georgia uh, and Russia. And it was a, uh, it was sustenance farming. Every family had their own garden, you know, where you had like carrots and potatoes, you had your own chickens, a well, an outhouse, everyone built their own houses. So it's a, um, you know, completely different life uh, than here. You know, no TVs, uh, really no technology, um, and limited electricity, you had to heat your own water. Um, so a completely different uh, life than here. So at what age did you pack the bags with the family and move to Sacramento? Uh, this was, uh, I was nine years old, shortly after I turned nine in uh, late 1991, just as the USSR was collapsing, uh, right right as Perestroika was happening. Um, so uh, it was my first flight ever, uh, you know, got on a flight to Moscow. And then from there, um, our entire family, six siblings, and uh, my parents uh, landed in New York and San Francisco and, and then Sacramento. So uh, definitely, and I knew one word in English. Um, which now sounds a little bit uh, um, connected to the work that I do. The word was cloud. Wow. Uh, in Russian, that word is kucha. And like, I don't, I don't know why I knew that word in particular, maybe because this my first time on a plane and I was just, maybe somebody right next to me um, told me what it was. I don't actually remember. Uh, I don't remember how I learned it, but I just knew that that was the only word that I knew. Well, um, I'm sure that that shaped you quite a bit because, I mean, being nine years old, Landing in a country where you don't know the language, making friends again, starting from nothing, you know, seeing your family going through also the the the, the journey too of uh, of being in a new place and trying to build a better tomorrow. You know, I'm sure that that shaped you up quite a bit. So how would you say that that kind of like changed your worldview and and yourself? Well, to be to be honest, it probably had the biggest impact um, from any other experience that I've had since because, you know, just seeing how, how much, um, you know, how much possibility exists in the States, in the United States versus kind of the possible life paths that are available where I grew up. Um, you know, you, you just get to appreciate, um, how, like the things that, that people chase, right. Things like financial freedom, things like, uh, you know, career progress and success 
all of those things felt like I had already made it just because my family was able to come to America and enjoy life here already was like this massive gift that everything, uh, you know, I could sort of uh, achieve on top of that was the cherry on top. Um, so that, that I think gave me the perspective that, um, you know, life is a world of possibilities and, um, and, and actually seeing how hard my parents worked, uh, coming here to this country, like basically, you know, with six kids in their thirties, uh, coming to a country where they don't speak the language. Um, and like, and it was a country that, that they have been trained on, uh, you know, their entire, uh, like childhood and adult life that it was evil, right. Through all the propaganda, um, that America was like, you know, going to destroy Russia, et cetera. So they, they chose to come to this country, um, on essentially like this hope and dream, uh, that everything is going to be okay. Even though they were like in some, in some ways, like entering enemy territory from how, what, how they were trained. And, and that created just like a deep work ethic because our family, you know, we were on welfare for many years. My parents were like trying to learn English. My dad, especially, uh, try to do like odd jobs here and there just to make ends meet. Um, and through that, you know, he would like, find jobs where the entire family would have to go clean like a dental office uh, every few uh, every few weeknights. Um, and that created this sense of, um, hey, you have to work hard to support your family. And sometimes you just like, uh, it's a deep responsibility. You don't get a choice between like, I whether I want to or not. Um, and I think that gave me a lot of, um, a lot of resilience and a lot of um, dedication once I did put my mind to something later on. Uh, when it came to building Webflow. So I, I, I think just the example that my parents set, seeing them work so hard, um, just wanted me to make them proud for like making the best of the kind of life that they created for us here just by, by bringing us here. Now, in your case, when it came time to go to college, um, you dropped out of quite a, a few times there. You know, you were kind of like finding or in the pursuit of finding your calling. And yep. it took a little bit for you to really finally get going on the computer science, you know, uh, path. So what do you think needed to happen for you to really get clear? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So the, the short story there is I, I went to Cal Poly to study computer science because that's where my brother was going. And my parents were just like, hey, we can't afford to, you know, drive you somewhere else uh, or uh, for you to go to a different college. Um, so I just followed my brother's older brother's footsteps, but I, I really, that was the main reason I went there is because my brother was doing it. So the first year I, I recognized that I really, really did not like, um, everything I was doing in computer science, right? Like learning how to program, et cetera. It just didn't hit me the way that, um, I thought I would enjoy it. Um, and, uh, through my teenage years, my dad actually pulled me into graphic design, uh, out of necessity to like kind of build some of these, um, the catalogs that he wanted to start a business around. Uh, and so that exposed me to sort of like cr the creative world. And um, around the same time, Pixar was becoming really popular. And I was like, whoa, I really want to learn, kind of combine these uh, artistic skills and learn how to become a 3D animator. So that's why I dropped out. And I was like, hey, I see so much more potential um, trying to work at Pixar. Uh, so I need to learn 3D animation. I need to learn like these 3D tools. So that's why I went to art school. But very quickly um, into that um, into that uh, stint at art school, it was about a year and a half. Um, the web started really taking off. Um, uh, so this was like early two thousand one, two thousand two, uh, and um, it just so happened that a startup 
that uh, a service that my friends were using to communicate, it was like this chat application, crashed after the dot-com bubble. Um, and while I was in art school, I was like, wait, I can, uh, you know, if I put, pick up a book on programming, which I kind of had a little bit of um, an intro to at Cal Poly, uh, maybe I can like rebuild the service um, so that my friends can keep using like this chat tool. So I, I ordered a book um, on Amazon and uh, on like how to build a web app. Um, and essentially ended up recreating that service. And that brought like my love for programming back. Like I could actually combine the act of like the creative uh, aspect of like designing an application and actually, um, you know, thinking about the user experience and then actually having the ability to implement it and bring it to life. Like that reignited my passion for, okay, I can actually build something and get it out on the web and have people use it. Uh, so that led me back to, okay, I, I need to go keep studying uh, programming. Plus, like I can see a lot more potential here of, uh, you know, starting a software company, et cetera. So I moved back um, and um, continued to work on uh, my computer science degree. But the thing that really um, put everything together is this, this art school was pretty expensive. I had to take out a bunch of loans. So I had to go and get sort of a side job uh, out Cal, Cal Poly to start to pay back my debts. And that job was at a web agency. Um, and that was creating like amazing websites for like Apple and the Tennis Channel, and Quicksilver, all these amazing clients. And then all these worlds between like 3D animation, graphic design and web design came together. Um, and the, the experience like, Building, building a web application and doing a lot of graphic design and 3D animation, like all collided into one idea around like, hey, if 3D animation tools exist to build like really amazing experiences on the movie screen, why, does, why isn't there software that is very similar to that, that helps web designers bring their ideas into production on the web? Because like, at the time, and still mostly um, is the case today, most websites need to be built by a coder. Uh, and, and that's when all of these ideas kind of came together to be like, hey, there's got to be a better way. And that's where the spark for the original version of Webflow came to be around like 2005. Um, that eventually led to my senior project, eventually led to me starting a company around it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we're talking about four attempts at really yeah. building Webflow. I mean, talking about not giving up. I mean, you, you, you did go later on to Y Combinator and... And Paul Graham, you know, has this, I think it's an essay, or he stated before that the best founders are like cockroaches, you know, nothing will kill them. So in your case, four attempts, I mean, what happened through each one of those attempts? Because typically people would just give up on the first try and they would be like, okay, you know, onto the next thing. So what happened, you know, for you to not give up, you know, what happened on attempt number one, number two, number three, and then leading you all the way to the number four that they ended up being the the good one? Well, to be honest, there were times after each attempt that I felt like I was giving up. Um, so, but then I just kept coming back to it. So the first attempt was right during college. So I was, um, you know, the original, when the original idea came to me, I was able to land the, the domain webflow.com, uh, which was a whole kind of journey in itself. Uh, and then I started a business around it solo. I was just like the only founder. Um, and I tried to start building like this application where you can build web applications visually. And um, what, what happened, like life happened, I fell in love uh, with my now wife, and I was approaching uh, graduation. And we were like approaching like right after graduation was uh, was our wedding, just like a few uh, weeks later. 
And the, there was like this question around like, well, I have to like provide for my family. So I have to like get a real job uh, as this startup is maybe like happening on the side. Uh, so I got a job, my first job out of college at Intuit. Um, and it was so all consuming because as a, you know, a, a first time engineer, uh, you're like day and night working to make sure like you're successful. Um, and Webflow sort of took a backseat because I was like, well, I have to like keep making a living uh, to support, you know, start to support my family. Um, my wife was going through like nursing school at the time. So there was no other income. And over time, it just kind of like phased out. Uh, and I kind of started forgetting about, uh, you know, just like didn't have enough time to work on Webflow. Um, and the product um, got to a place where, you know, I was coding some nights and weekends. Uh, but over time, because I didn't have any customers, it's sort of, uh, you know, I lost, um, I lost the motivation to work around it. And I got more excited to, uh, about working it into it. Uh, and, and then it kind of, um, you know, this idea was floating in the back of my head, but I started to see other startups starting in the space like Weebly, where I had just assumed that, okay, they're going to, you know, they already got funding, they're going to um, kind of solve this problem. And, and I, thought that, okay, I was too late to the game. Um, and maybe, you know, but if I had started earlier, I would have a shot, but, it, but starting today, um, you know, I wouldn't be able to like catch up to, to, to those teams. But about a year later, as I was working into it, a coworker um, uh, kind of came to me and was like, hey, I heard that you were working on the startup. Um, and he was a designer. Um, and we had started, started like, um, like getting excited about it again. Like, hey, what if we actually, this is around the time that Y Combinator was um, having their first batch. Uh, so we, uh, you know, started working on it nights and weekends, got like really excited about it again, started putting together like pitch decks um, and, uh, you know, trying to talk to lawyers uh, to incorporate, try to get funding. Um, but then, uh, you know, one of the uh, we it invited another guy to to join our team, so it was like the three of us. Uh, and then uh, you know, one one person lost motivation over time, and then uh, we kind of like lost track of it. Um, again, like the day job uh, became like more time consuming. Um, so over time, it's sort of even though we pitched some investors, some said no, most said like. Hey, come back to us when uh, you know when you actually have a product with users. Um, but I think we found that kind of um, demotivating that we couldn't raise money, uh, and we like focused more on on the day jobs again. Then about six months later, like more startups started to raise funding, and we're like, whoa, we're kind of missing the boat here. Uh, this was around two thousand, late two thousand seven, early two thousand eight, and we were like, all right, let's go all in. So we found another co-founder. Um, actually raised some money from uh, uh, from essentially lawyers who were like, hey, we'll provide you free legal services uh, to get incorporated. Um, and here's a bit of money to like uh, for, for development um, and, and start building. So we started working like nights and weekends to get an actual product out there. Um, and then when we started to like get close to announcing, uh, you know, something like, putting a website out there saying like, hey, we're going to take pre not pre-orders, but you know, people signing up for a wait list, et cetera. We got a cease and desist letter from a company in Florida that said like, hey, you can't use the name Webflow. We noticed that you have 
you know, webflow.com, we have a trademark for it, et cetera. And that started a pretty long battle. I think it was like six months of going back and forth um, to see if we can like get the name back. Even though we had the domain, we couldn't use the name Webflow uh, for the product. So we rebranded to a different name. Um, but through that, we essentially like ran out of the money that, you know, the lawyers gave us. Um, and um, we had both uh, like the two founders that were left put in a little bit of money to like extend the runway. But it was just like not enough to um, get excited about it again. And I think I was, I was honestly like just very down on the idea that I c- couldn't use the name Webflow. Um, and it's sort of like, and it, that was around the same time that I had my first kid. Um, and it sort of turned into like, okay, this is too risky. Um, there's too much risk here to like go all in. So let's just kind of like keep working on on the side. And I started kind of thinking about Webflow more as like an agency where I would find some clients, maybe do a website for them. And in that process, uh, like gradually improve like this product that I was building. That was essentially just for myself at that point to like ease the process to, to make websites and like um, uh, edit them after the fact for clients. And that's kind of what what uh, kept happening for a few years. I, I kept, you know, kept my de- job at Intuit. Um, the, uh, I started getting a little bit more income on the side building websites. And then out of nowhere, um, in 2011, late 2011, um, I got in the mail a uh, trademark certificate from the U.S. patent or the U.S. trademark office that basically said, "Hey, congratulations, you have uh, Webflow the trademark." So apparently, that like whenever we got denied in 2007, um, we were kept on some list that when the trademark expired because the company just either didn't renew it or um, like didn't care about it anymore. It was essentially like a sign to me. Uh, I don't know if you want to call it like divine providence or coincidence or whatever. It was like, okay, something is like meant to be here uh, that we have the name again. And um, so then I started making plans with my wife around like, okay, let's start saving so that like at some point I can like uh, quit my job and work on this full time. And it started that conversation. Um, and then one time in early 2012, I randomly saw this um, conference talk on on uh, Facebook that came across my feed. Facebook was still a, a thing at the time. Uh, and it was like this this talk about, you know, why you do the work that you do. It was, it was a conference talk called uh, Inventing a Principle by Brett Victor. And I watched that thing and literally the next day, and it was all around like this idea of visual development, how you can like abstract away really complex programming concepts and bring it into a visual UI to democratize access to it. And it was exactly what I needed to see. It was like, all right, the combination of this trademark sign plus this video, uh, this conference talk is like the universe is telling me that I have to start this again. Um, So, you know, we had two kids at the time, very little in savings, but we're just like, screw it. Let's move to uh, Mountain View where, you know, we're going to try to apply to YC. Um, I, I called up my brother who was the best designer I knew, but he was still in in school um, and uh, asked them to like, hey, can you help? Uh, wasn't even thinking of him as a co- co-founder. Uh, but over time, we started working closer and closer together. And it's like, hey, why not just join forces and, and start this full time? And uh, eventually in 2013, actually 2012, uh, had enough courage to take the leap and say, all right, this is like the time to do it. We have a little bit of savings. Um, the universe is telling me I have to do this. And I now have, you know, a partner uh, in my brother who's a co-founder to like really get this off the ground. Um, 
and uh, you know the rest is history. I mean, we had quite a bit of challenges after we started this last fourth time in like actually getting funds and um, being able to survive. Uh, but you know, it was every single time was a different reason. Either you know worried about competitors or running out of money or dealing with this trademark issues. Uh, but through it all, I think I, um, even though I gave up sometimes, like like my mind would naturally come back to what could have been, right? So I think it, it definitely uh, was always there around like, hey, this is an idea I really have to get off the ground um, at, at some point in my life. And like all the factors came together uh, to make it real in 2012. So for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of Webflow? How do you guys make money? Very simple. Um, it's a SaaS-based service. So uh, initially, we were very much exactly like Adobe, where you know you pay monthly to get access to the service. Um, but then we developed uh, hosting plans. So essentially, once you build a site, uh, it's not just the building phase. You can actually uh, run and manage it uh, directly on Webflow. So right now, the business model is very simple. Uh, a business needs a, um, a site. And usually it is built like at the scale that we operate. It's like professional websites. They're not just like, it's not like a Squarespace, um, you know, pick a template and change some, uh, you know, images and text. It is literally build the kind of site that developers build. Um, so like a Stripe.com, Apple.com, et cetera, like really, really complex professional sites. Um, so either a business directly and their brand team, their marketing team or brand designer uh, will start to use Webflow um, and um, essentially pay us monthly or yearly for both like the, the software to develop and um, the the um, infrastructure to actually run their websites in production, scale it, make sure it doesn't go down, et cetera. Uh, or, and we also have like a very big partner channel where uh, service providers, these are like freelancers, agencies, people who uh, offer professional web services, web design services, SEO optimization, um, uh, can help help marketing teams run ads, et cetera, they use Webflow directly to build sites for clients, for larger companies. Um, and, and that's essentially the business model. And over time, especially over the last four years, we've moved more and more into serving not just smaller um, startups, but also very large enterprises where it's like thousands of people, very large deployments, very large uh, sites that are mission critical, that, that run um, you know, the majority of their web presence, if not all of it. Um, so it's a pretty standard SaaS model where, you know, uh, companies pay us a recurring fee for um, hosting their website. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone. It's super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, 
or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And how much capital have you guys raised to date? Um, we've raised approximately $250 million, if I'm uh, remembering correctly. It has been a little bit uh, different, you know, the, the journey of raising the money, especially when we're thinking about the Series A that you guys did, which was $70 million. Uh, there was quite a bit of time, you know, from the time that uh, you guys raised initially, you know, around, uh, I mean, especially, you know, you guys became profitable around 2015, all the mm-hmm. way to do, to really doing that Series A in 2019. So why did you guys go about that route? And especially, you know, mm-hmm. raising a Series A when you were at 15 million in revenue, that's typically unheard of. Well, yeah, it's a, um, it was kind of a unique series of events. Initially, when we raised our uh, seed round in 2013, uh, it was about a million dollars. Um, like we we thought we were going to be on a typical path of a startup, right? Like you you raise a seed round a year later or two years later, you raise a Series A, et cetera. Um, what happened was that so we raised our uh, seed round and started building, started hiring folks, started um, like expanding our platform. Uh, but uh, we, you know, we're just not growing the business fast enough to justify Series A. So like the investors that we talked to, um, uh, we just didn't have the metrics uh, at the time to raise Series A. And we were getting close to running out of cash, um, or at least the trend was heading in a direction where if we just kept uh, going the way we were going, we're just going to run out of cash. So in like 2014-ish, we decided, okay, we have to, like the only path really to survival is to become default alive, which means that we can run on revenue. So we made it uh, like a, a really clear goal for ourselves, like let's get to break even, cash flow break even, where we're spending uh, uh, at least, at most, what we're making, um, and ideally less than what we bring in from customers. So, like you mentioned, in 2015, we we actually reached that milestone of being cash flow uh, break even, and then even cash flow positive, um, and that allowed us to just keep growing, you know, very consistently over many many years. And and we just saw that. Uh, there's really no, um, it didn't feel like there was a reason to to raise funding, nor were, were we being approached by investors. Because again, uh, earlier on, the business was not growing fast enough. But then um, a- around 2017, 2018, like Webflow started to become more and more known um, among like startups, service providers, uh, more uh, more businesses. And then that started raising the eyebrows of a lot more investors. We're like, hey, something here, you know, why we have we not heard of this business, right? Like what, every other YC startup that went through like YC in summer 13 uh, is like raising either like failing or raising like very significant rounds earlier uh, just to grow faster. Um, and so we're kind of like off the radar for a while. But by the time we we came on investors radar, it's when investors like really started to value profitable businesses that were still growing really nicely that had great product market fit. So that started a lot of conversations with uh, quite a few investors, but I was still like very, very skeptical around uh, bringing in uh, investors because I, you know, there's a lot of stories around uh, kind of folks who were operating in a growth at all costs kind of mentality or uh, turning 
the business into something that the founders didn't want uh, or envision, or not the reason that they started the company. So I was like pretty skeptical around it. Um, but when we were able to uh, meet the right partners, um, and like you had mentioned, we one thing that gave me confidence about like really uh, going the venture path is establishing the social contract with uh, individual investing partners around uh, like the true North Star being Webflow's mission and vision, not some quick financial return for them. Um, so I had to make sure that the people that we partner with are the people who could like in a different world be the co-founders of the business, right? They, they care so much about having um, get, bringing what we want to bring to the world that they are effectively like a team member um, and are uh, making decisions in a way that is optimizing for the long-term success of our mission. Um, and, and that came with the opportunity to, you know, even though we were profitable, we were just like barely profitable so that every month we were, um, you know, maybe able to afford one more engineer. Uh, to like keep building the product faster. But the amount of demand we're getting from customers at the time was like, hey, we need to move faster, right? Like we need a lot more. We're now basing our entire livelihood and our business on your platform. Like, can you move faster in creating um, the things that, that we really need? Uh, and that was the, the logic behind like, okay, if we can find the right partners uh, who really believe in the mission and vision of the company and um, can uh, like agree with the way that we always run the business in a default to live state where we're never dependent on raising additional money to, to um, survive. Um, if they are, are really aligned on all the things that we care about, our values, our you know, community, the, the product that we're building, why not go faster? Why not get more capital? We call it courage capital. Why not get capital that helps us uh, forward invest into the products that we want to build that we don't have the, you know, the cash for yet um, or would have to wait too long? Um, and it was usually um, a, it was mostly a decision from the point of view of like bringing our uh, product and our expanding our mission faster and bringing the, the solution into more hands as quickly as possible because we saw how much it like changes people's lives um, and helps you know service providers make a living and grow their own business helps companies like completely transform how they run marketing so that it's not dependent on engineering so they can move like 10 times faster etc and that was absolutely the right call uh, what was it like now four years ago uh, when we decided to do our series a uh, because that gave us uh, both the capital and the confidence to dramatically increase our um, like the capabilities of our platform and like hire ahead uh, of um, uh, of the business growing etc um, and th we've just seen fundraising as that um, that kind of lever from then. Like, how do we bring more partners on board who really believe in what we're doing and uh, have the experience that we don't have yet to help us like see around corners as the company scales and becomes larger? Um, but primarily, they uh, see their capital as a way to amplify our mission rather than just like another vehicle to, you know, grow, grow their uh, investment. Um, and so far, we've had, you know, we've, we've had two rounds since our series A, our series B and our series C and like the partners that we've brought on board have only uh, amplified um, our ability. Again, like I see them as like an extension to the, to the co-founding team um, just helps us in every single, every single week uh, like tackle challenges that, uh, you know, they are more familiar with because of their experience that helps our team kind of navigate these um uh, as we grow, like all the opportunities that we're able to chase and uh, help us scale like the company and, and how we operate uh, in a way that 
that um, can build a fundamentally long-lasting generational company that um, continues to change the lives of many people. Like that, that feels like a huge responsibility and opportunity. Um, and you know, our venture partners are just like another uh, awesome tool to help us uh, bring that impact uh, to the world sooner. So obviously here, you know, we're talking about the vision, you know, the way that uh, these folks had to sign the social contract to be able to come on board as investors and the future that you guys are living into, no? I want to talk about the past, but doing so now with a lens of reflection. If I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back to that moment where you were thinking about, you know, building something of your own, maybe to 2006, and you had the opportunity of having a chat with that younger self before trying that first attempt at uh, Webflow. And let's say you were able to give that younger self, that younger Vlad, one piece of advice for launching the business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Ooh, what a great question. Um, one thing I would say to my uh, younger self is like, man, don't spend the cycles worrying, worrying about um, fill in the blank, all the things I worried about. Like I look back to all the way to 2006, like the things that I really uh, was constantly in my head around, like I shouldn't start this because there's too many competitors already. Or I don't uh, feel like I can charge money for this product um, at the way that it currently is. Like I just don't have the confidence that people would pay for it. Um, all of these apps, or I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not able to, uh, I just had this uh, candidate say no because they don't want to join. And all of a sudden, I'm assuming that uh, nobody else will want to join the company in the mission, right? Like I was constantly in my head around like the negative um, sort of, I don't know if you want to call them like saboteurs or like these negative voices. They're just like, it's not going to work, etc. I wish I had, um, I wish I could tell my younger self like, hey, don't spend more than five minutes worrying about these things because ultimately the things that I spent hours, if not days, if not weeks worrying about, like didn't manifest uh, or were not as bad as I thought they would be. Um, but I lost so much sleep and so much, you know, peace, uh, just worrying it like constantly in like the state of anxiety around like everything's going to break or nothing's going to work, et cetera. So I wish I could just like shake my younger self and be like, don't worry as much as you worry because it, it really sabotages your ability to, um, to bring the best ideas forward. And actually, like, as I say this right now, it's like things I need to hear myself today, even, even uh, as I'm reflecting, because there's probably a lot of things that, um, you know, I'm worried about today that probably don't uh, deserve the, the time or attention. Um, so focus on the positive. Yeah, I think, I think that's what I would say. Like, if that's the biggest weight that, that I can remember kind of dragging all throughout. And it really was um, uh, only harmful to myself to be able to like, uh, to be constantly in my head worried about these things. Uh, of course, there are things that are uh, practical that require worrying, right? Like if you're running out of cash as a company, um, that's a, a practical consideration that you should worry about, but also have like a plan around. Um, but I think I spent way too much time um, thinking about things that ultimately didn't matter um, and only created like a weight and a drag on my emotional and physical state, to be honest, um, and uh, kept me from like bringing my best to uh, what we were doing every day. Um, the other thing I would say is um, that I wish I internalized sooner is 
have more confidence in in asking people to pay for valuable things that you create. So from from the beginning, in the first three attempts, actually, like my default was to make the product free, completely free, until some like way further event where it becomes like really valuable. Um, but in almost all cases like that, you actually give away too much um, and you you sabotage your ability to build a sustaining business that lets you uh, keep improving the product or service or whatever you're bringing to market. So we were lucky enough that in in YC, in this first uh, fourth attempt, somebody like really shook us and said, hey, everything you're saying right now about like you want to uh, launch the product, but make it free because you're not comfortable charging for it. Um, you have to charge for it. Like you, we're going to kick you out if you don't charge for it. Basically, they made it like that stark. And I'm glad that they did um, because that even though a very small number of customers on our waitlist converted to actual customers, uh, it was the exact right customers because those are the ones who were willing to pay for like the value that we offered. And that started to bring in revenue that gave us more confidence that, you know, we can build a sustainable business. So I, I would just say like, be less shy about pricing your product or service well to match what, uh, what value it brings uh, to the world. And yeah, you're going to have people saying it's too expensive or this is not, um, you know, I wouldn't pay for this, et cetera. But don't let those uh, kind of few voices um, make, help you make all the decisions around creating, uh, like fairly pricing uh, the, the, the value that you bring to the market or whatever your product or service brings to the market. Got it. So, Vlad, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Um, I'm very rarely on Twitter, but I'm call, uh, at CallMeVlad on Twitter. Um, you can also reach me via email. It's just Vlad at Webflow.com. Um, I can't promise that I'll respond in all cases, uh, but uh, happy, to, happy to try. But I, I, one thing that I really care about is you know, when we were uh, starting many different times, like the, there were multiple folks who uh, essentially, uh, there were a lot of naysayers saying like, this would never work, et cetera. But like the very few folks who were like, hey, even if the idea sounds too, too hard to implement or the business uh, might not work, they were always encouraging and saying like, hey, you at least have to try. Like, it sounds like your gut is uh, taking you in this direction. Uh, keep going, even when you have a lot of people saying it's not going to work. Uh, and my um, my goal right now, like where we are as a company, is to help uh, try to help as many other founders early on in their journey, like keep persevering. Um, so as much as my story can help others get an extra wind of uh, motivation or, or or inspiration, like um, especially in the dark moments, um, I really wish like more founders were able to convince themselves to keep going because more often than not, the ideas you have in your head, um, even if many people don't believe that they're possible, it's like the thing that brings most innovation to the world is just like a few people being like really tenacious and stubborn sometimes um, in um, being determined to say like, hey, this is a problem that needs to be solved and, and I see a vision for, for solving it. So keep going. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Vlad. It has been a real honor to have you on the show. So thank you so much for being part of the show today. Of course, it's been an honor. I'm happy to be here. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, 
whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.